Friday's dinner will not be at the Wyoming Inn. It will be at Central House, as I said previously. Six o'clock. You need to let Karen know, though, okay? Because we need to change the reservation. It's already a pretty good-sized group, and we're excited to have you all there to enjoy one of our favorite restaurants. As far as we're concerned, they have about the best salad bar in the whole area. She told me to wait a second. So. Um, we come this morning to a section of scripture in John's Gospel in which you are specifically and personally referred to. He mentions you by name. So, what I'd like you to do is to turn to John chapter 17 in what is called Jesus' High Priestly Prayer. And in this passage, Jesus actually prays for you. And I want us to look at that. Would you look at John 17? And let's begin reading at verse 1. We're going to actually read the entire chapter. It's only 26 verses, but I want to read it together. So would you follow along? If you don't have a Bible, it will be up on the screens on each side. Verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. 
Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me. That they may be, be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved me as you have loved, and you have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. May God add His blessings to the reading of His Word. Little did Randy Posh know that he would become the author of a best-selling book in the nation when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in August of 2007. He was a research professor from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. And he was invited to give what had historically become known as the last lecture. The idea behind this lecture was that a specific professor was chosen each year to give a lecture to his departing students as if it was the last thing he could ever say to them because he was going to die. But when Randy Posh gave his last lecture, it actually was a reality for him. He stood before a packed lecture hall at Carnegie Mellon and gave a lecture for almost two hours. The lecture was presented to students, but as he clearly stated, the real target for him in his lecture was his three children. Dylan, who was six years old, Logan, who was four, and Chloe, who was two. The lecture was posted on YouTube and has been viewed more than 11 million times. And that last lecture was put into a book form and became a best-selling book in the entire nation. Professor Posh followed his writing of this book by giving testimony before Congress for increased funding for pancreatic cancer, which, by the way, is the fourth leading cause of death of cancer in this nation. On July 25, 2008, just 11 months following his initial diagnosis, Professor, Professor Posh actually gave his life to pancreatic cancer. He was only 48 years old. Now, I don't know about you, but there is something about people's last words that tend to lend import to things. When they get closer and closer to death, the last things they say 
often have some of the greatest meanings. My mother-in-law, who is 93 years old, has recently been writing letters to her sister-in-law in Wales, telling her things that she needs to think about as she prepares for her soon-to-come death. Now, as far as we know, Beryl's okay. But my mother-in-law feels obligated, as she herself is a little bit aged now, to make sure that you understand what's really important. She says things like this, you can't take your money with you, you know. Things that are said towards the very end can have great import. Now, I suspect that if you knew that this was the last time that I would ever speak to you because I was going to die tomorrow, my words to you might take on a different level of import. But the truth is, none of us knows when we're going to die. So we treat our words as everyday common words instead of lending to them the import that they should have. Now, a long time before Randy Posh, another teacher had acquired a gathering of students, and he gave a last lecture. He had been their teacher now for about three years, and he, he had chosen them out of obscurity and asked them to follow him, and that he would teach them a way of life that ultimately would have the power to change the world. This last lecture that he gave them in what became known as the Upper Room, this last lecture, just prior to his death, is his last opportunity to actually instruct them about this new way of life. It's his last opportunity to actually warn them about impending dangers and how to walk in a way that would keep them strong in the face of extraordinary adversity. And upon completing his last lecture in this upper room, the scripture says in John 13, which many of you probably don't even realize, that having finished the last supper, he left and for three more chapters he continued to teach them. Until we get to chapter 17, where he actually prays his final prayer before them. Now, Jesus prayed a lot of prayers. The scripture often would say Jesus went aside to pray. But this prayer was recorded. This prayer has that kind of import. And aren't you grateful, by the way, that somebody had the forethought to actually write down what was the last prayer that Jesus would pray here upon the face of the earth? He knows that as soon as he finishes this prayer, the cancer of sin and death was going to take his life the very next day. He knows that he's going to be tied up and mocked and beaten. He knows that thorns are going to prick his brow. That nails are going to crush his wrists and his ankles. He knows that a spear is going to pierce his side, and that he will be hung upon a cross where he will die for mankind. He knows all of that. But the last thing he wants to do is he wants to pray. He wants to pray to the Father. In my father-in-law's last days upon the earth, as we gathered around the bed that we had set up in their living room for him, we found him often looking up. We, we don't know, but part of the discussion was, what was he seeing? What was he looking at? Was it possible that as the door 
of this life was soon to close and he would enter into true life, is it possible that he began to see things that we can't see? And is it possible that Jesus saw things that you and I don't see and that he offers it up in prayer? He says, Father, there are some things I want to say to you, but I want these, my students, to hear them. What, what, what is it that he prayed for? I want to just point out, when, when I read this section of Scripture as I do each week as I read through what I'm going to be speaking, three things jumped up to me immediately, and I'm sure they did to you. What are the three things that Jesus prayed for? Number one, he prayed for himself. He prayed for himself. He said, Father, I pray. What, what was it that he prayed again? Oh yeah, he said, Father, I pray that you will glorify me. Now, I suspect that for some of you, that's going to offend you. Doesn't that seem kind of self-serving? Kind of egotistical of him to say, glorify me? Well, I suppose it would be if you didn't know anything else about Jesus. But if you know anything else about Jesus, you know he is the most sacrificing man who ever walked the face of the earth. There are people in this world who want glory. Uh, People like football players who score a touchdown and have to do their glory dance in the end zone. Or I love it. I, I watched a series of uh, uh, guys playing basketball and every time they would dunk, they would like strut around like they did something that no one had ever done before in this world. We call them glory hogs. Was Jesus just a glory hog? Was it all about Him? And by the way, it's not just the sports world that's full of glory seekers. I think sometimes the religious world is full of glory seekers. I mean, if you take any time at all to watch TV or listen to the radio or listen to the internet or watch the internet, you see religious people on there touting the greatness of their own ministry and anointing. So even the religious world has glory hogs. So we need to understand what Jesus is saying when he says, Father, would you glorify your son? First, we have to notice this. There is no, and I'm going to make up a word because I can't think of a better word. It's okay. There is no disingenuity in Jesus. Is that a good word? Disingenuity. Okay. It's a good word to use in the sermon. Our word expert just said. In other words, Jesus is not trying to cloak his ego problems with religious language. He doesn't just tag on the end of it. Father, glorify your son. And oh yeah, that your son might glorify you. He doesn't just tag that on the end flippantly. He literally means that, Father, the way that you're going to receive the most glory is if you glorify me so that I can reflect. Because you, Father, and I are one. And if they can see my glory, Father, they can see your glory. So there's no disingenuity in Christ's prayer for glory. Secondly, we need to understand what Jesus meant by glory. Or else, I think if we did, we wouldn't be so suspicious of his motives. 
The entire Gospel of John is a story about the glory of God. In fact, what was Jesus' first miracle? Water into wine. And if you read that story in John chapter 2, if you read the story, at the very end it says, and thus His disciples beheld His glory. Everything that Jesus did was to reveal glory. But then He begins to talk like this in John chapter 12. He says this, Father, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does he mean by that? What's he talking about when he says it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified? Oh yeah, let me read on. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It's for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. When he begins to talk about his glory now, he's talking about his death. And the only way you can rightly understand glory is in light of the cross of Jesus Christ. His glory is that he would lay down his life for you and I. That's his glory. So he prays, Father, glorify me. What's he mean? He means, Father, help me to walk through this sacrifice, this death, that is going to give you greater glory and bring many sons and daughters into glory. Excuse me. This is not some, some showman wanting to be on the center stage to receive applause. This is a Savior who is sacrificing His very life for us. This isn't uh, some superstar wanting special treatment. Uh, I, I have a friend uh, who is a pastor down in South Carolina, and he decided to invite a well-known minister of the gospel to do a crusade in their area in Myrtle Beach. So they invited him. And he said, okay, I will come, but here's the way I do it. If I come for every service that I minister at, whether I ever preach or not, for every service that I'm at, you have to pay me $10,000. You have to fly me first class. I need this kind of food. I don't stay at any hotel less than five star. I need a limousine. He goes on and on and on. And I want to suggest to you, that's not Jesus. That's not the heart that he's talking about when he says glorify your son because he knows he's just about to lay down his life. This isn't about glory hogs. This is about somebody who says the only real glory is as we lay down our lives for one another. This isn't a wannabe king who's demanding crowns and jewels. His only crown is a crown of thorns. So what do we get out of this? For me personally, I have had people tell me, I've had people in this church, maybe even you, tell me, I don't pray for myself because it would be selfish. And I want to suggest to you, you ought to follow the example of Jesus. You ought to pray for yourself. You don't pray in a self-serving way. You pray, God, I pray that my life would glorify you. I pray that what I'm going through, whatever it might be, maybe you're going through sickness, maybe you're one of those who have been through this flu four, five, six times now. And you're saying, Father, glorify your name in me. Help me to walk this out with courage that I might be able to express something of your goodness to people around me. That I do things differently. Help me to love people differently. Help me to express 
your glory and your goodness. It's okay to pray for yourself as long as it's not just completely about you. It's about how you express the heart of the Father around you. So it's not wrong to pray for healing for yourself. It's not wrong to pray for wisdom. But it's for a bigger purpose. It's for God's purpose in the earth. So he prayed for himself, number one. Number two, he prayed for his students in verses 6 to 18. He admits he's not praying. And I want you to get this. He admits he's not praying for the world. And for some of you, that's going to bug you because you're going to say, wait, didn't he just say back in chapter 3, God loved the whole world? Why isn't he praying for the world? You need to understand that when he is praying this, this is a crisis moment in the life of Christ. He knows he's about to die. And when things get right down to the nitty-gritty, who are the people that most encapsulate your mind and heart? Your family. And for Jesus, these students were his family. He was praying for family. He was praying for those people whom God had given him. This is a specific prayer for a specific group of people. He's praying for those students who had signed up for his class, not for all of the students who didn't sign up for his class. Um, Back in 2008, our daughter Jennifer, as many of you know, was in a very, very serious car accident. Um, Karen and I had seen her that morning. We had had church. We had had lunch together. And then she left with a friend to go back to college, and we had laid down to take a nap. The phone rang, and we weren't going to answer it. We just thought, well, if it's important, they'll leave a message, and we'll get it later. And so uh, Karen, though, felt like she ought to answer the phone. So she got up, she got the voicemail, and found out that it was the police saying Jennifer had been in a car accident, and she was being mercy-flighted to Strong Memorial Hospital. We got up quickly, we were out the door, and I tell you the truth, I probably broke every speed limit that was there. I didn't care. Let the police follow me on the way. They can give me a ticket there, but I'm going to get to the hospital. I want you to know that in that moment, although I care for you, I genuinely care for you, and we do pray for you. We pray for many of you every single night. We care for Warsaw. I even care for the world in as much a way as I can. But in that moment, I didn't really think about you at all. I only thought about her. And that's just what Jesus was doing. He thought about his family. He thought about those who were closest to them. And when he prays for them, he prays this. He says, Holy Father, keep to your name those that you have given me. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. He prays not that they wouldn't have physical harm. He prays that they would hold up strong in the faith, even through all that they would face. He knowing that he was soon about to experience excruciating pain. He knew, because he was the Son of God, that these, his students, would all but one die a martyr's death. An excruciating death. Peter when he was jailed for his faith and was going to be taken out, they said they were going to crucify him. And Peter said, I'm not worthy to be crucified as my Lord. And he begged that they would crucify him upside down. Jesus, knowing all of that, doesn't pray that they would be delivered from it. He prays that they would hold strong through it all. 
he doesn't pray that they wouldn't have emotional upheaval. Because the truth is, we all have emotional upheaval at times. Stuff hits us hard. But he prays that we would keep our faith in him in the midst of it all. He prayed for his family. He prayed for perseverance. He prayed for protection. He prayed that the temptation to give way to the kingdom of the evil one versus the kingdom of God wouldn't take root in their heart. Because it's really easy when things don't go the way you think they should to become disillusioned. It's really easy when friends and family have things happen that don't make sense to you to become discouraged and disappointed in God. When people you love get cancer, when loved ones die unexpectedly, it can be hard. And Jesus prayed that they would keep their eyes on the Father, that they would stay connected to Him. So, He prayed for Himself, He prayed for His students, and lastly, He prayed for us. I told you, Jesus prayed for you specifically. He says, I do not pray for these alone, speaking about His students, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. We who have heard the testimony of the gospel, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is Jesus' deathbed prayer, although he's not on a bed. This is his last prayer for us. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth about the church is that we would be one. We would be united. He wants the church to be one, even as he and the Father are one. And I have to suggest to you, I think it's breaking the Father's heart when there is such disunity in churches around the world. I'm not talking about denominations now, because I think God can actually use denominations. Denominations to me are kind of like my kids. Every one of my kids are unique. Don't scowl yet, Jeremy. You haven't heard my example. Every one of my kids are unique. They're different. They're all part of my family. They're all my kids, but every one has their own distinctions, their own peculiarities. I think denominations are like that. Each one can express different facets of the heart of their father. So I don't have any problem with denominations. That's not what I'm about. I've been in other countries. I've been in Africa where Methodists work hand-in-hand with Baptists who work hand-in-hand with Pentecostals without any problem. I don't think the issue is denomination. I think the issue is disunity right in your own church. We're talking about doing a renovation. It's it's a fairly major project. $62,000 worth. But do you know there are churches that would actually have splits over that kind of thing? And you guys all go, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. There's the bad churches down the road. But the truth is, we mention what we're going to do. And some of you immediately have to come up to Pastor John and tell him how we should have done it. Because you have such strong preferences. You have expertise. I'm not saying you don't. I'm saying, can we just say, in the end, we're going to pull together no matter what. I might have different views. I have different ways of doing things than Karen. I think the toilet paper should come from over the top. She doesn't care. I think the toothpaste roll should be squeezed from the bottom. She thinks it should be squeezed on the vanity top. 
She thinks the vanity all belongs to her. There's two sinks. One is hers, one is mine. She thinks the vanity is hers. We have differences of opinion. But I still love her. I even like her. Even with all of her peculiarities. Here's my point. I don't have any. The fact that my clothes all go in order by color and on specific hangers is not a peculiarity. That's order. Organization. Socks go here, not here. Anyways, here's my point. My point is this. In a church, you can have differences of opinion, different views, different perspectives. But can we pull together and not pull apart because somebody doesn't buy into your view? I have to tell you, the honest truth. I didn't pick anything in the bathrooms. I didn't pick the color. I didn't pick the vantage tops. I didn't pick the toilets. I didn't pick any of it. Because I don't care. Because when it's all said and done, it will be all said and done. Who cares? It's a bathroom. It's a roof. Do I have thoughts? Yes, I do. But they don't matter. Because I'm looking at a bigger picture. The bigger picture is us bettering this building so that we can further that which God has asked us to do in this area. So that when people come in, they're not put off by our facilities. They're not distracted by that. So can we agree that in the midst of all that we go through as a church, we're going to heed the prayer of Jesus and we're going to seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Which means sometimes letting others have their way. And it's okay. Because it just isn't that important. It's about us so loving God that we don't allow differences to keep us from loving and honoring one another. Now, some of you in this room have different views than I do. Um, I have very clear thoughts about a lot of different things in life. But in the end, most of those thoughts, I'm willing to just let go if it means that we can stay connected. Because they're not that big of a deal to me. There are ways to do things that in my heart and mind, I think they, they make sense. But if you said, you can't do it that way anymore, I'd say, okay, that's life. I'll figure it out. I'm going to China. We booked our flights. We booked our flights. How many flights was it again? 13 to 15 flights. We booked them. Only to have the guy who booked them for us tell me yesterday, the airlines are changing some of our flights on us. My response was, that's China. What are you going to do? You flow with it. And that's what I'm asking of us. A saint from generations ago, his name was St. Augustine, said this, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In essentials, unity. In other words, in those things that are crucial to the faith, we're going to stand unified. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, our Savior. The Bible is the very Word of God. There are things that we're not going to change for anybody. But there are things that aren't essentials. 
In those, he said, give liberty to one another. But in all things, do it with love. That's his call to us. This unity across denominational, gender, nationalistic lines, it crosses it all. Jesus prayed that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and you have loved them as you have loved me. Your unity, your connectedness expresses something to the world. And I want you to keep that in your mind because that's what Jesus prayed. Father, let them be one that the world may know, so that the world will know that I came from you. And yet, how often does our egos and our pride and our preferences get in the way? This prayer that Jesus offered, it's been read, well, more than 11 million times, more than Randy Posh's last lecture. He was giving his last lecture. He says at the end of his lecture, after two hours, he says, this lecture, you students got to hear, but this is for my children, so that when I am gone, they will be able to hear it again and know that I was thinking of them in my last moments. You need to know that Jesus was thinking of you in his last moments. And he was praying specifically for you. He was praying that one day, when his students grow up, they would have other students, and those students would have students, and every one of them would hear about this good teacher. And they would follow him. And that the world would know he's from God. That's what this is all about. Would you stand with me? hard to wake up, isn't it? Oh, I'm sorry, honey. Would you join with me in prayer? Father, I thank you for your son Jesus who prayed to you, but in the hearing of his disciples and because it was written down in our hearing. Thank you for this prayer, and I pray, God, that you would cause us to relate together in a way that is loving, and accepting and that we would honor the differences between us we would even celebrate them and not diminish one another's value because each one thinks differently I pray that you would help us to walk in unity as you father are in the son and the son is in you and that together we would reflect the truth that Jesus Christ the very son of God was sent from the father and loved by the father as we are loved by the Father. Let that be our testimony, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. One more thing before we go.